Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Jiggle Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with me another Friday evening where we have the opportunity to engage the gospel text that we will be hearing on Sunday. Uh, this is the Feast of Christ the King, which means annually that the following Sunday is the start of a new year, a new liturgical year, right? The first Sunday of Advent, which in turn means for us this Sunday, when we reflect upon uh, the Feast of Christ the King, we are made to look back to some extent, and at the same time kind of look ahead. But in the looking back, it is the end of a time, okay? It is the end of a period. And so this reading kind of sets us up for, well, the end. This gospel that we will be reading today, uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46, really is about the end of time. And we're going to talk about this a great deal, and we will do so through the prism of understanding on a deeper level the meaning of kingdom and certainly Christ's kingship. Uh, This will have us going back to one of the great church fathers, one of the great biblical theologians, Origen. And as we have been over the last few months in the Gospel of Matthew, we will continue to draw from the towering figure of uh, Mary Caucus. So with that, the Gospel of Matthew. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand, but the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, O blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, Truly, I say to you, As you did it not to one of the least of these, you did not to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
Amen. Wow, those are some beautiful words, huh? I've always felt that if you were to actually read these sets of verses, pray with them, reflect with them, internalize them, and live them, well, you're going to be a saint. If you read this reading every day, you will be well on your way. You really will. You really will. I love uh, the Greek there. As you read this text in the Greek, specifically as he's uh, calling us to serve him in these different modes, there's a certain rhythm and tenor that is attractive. It draws you in. It, it pulls you in. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So what can we say of the kingdom of God and Christ's kingship? Well, let us turn to, again, uh, the great church father, Origen. First of all, when you talk about the kingdom of God, what we must first understand is that Jesus himself is the kingdom incarnate. So once we realize that the kingdom of God is first and foremost about a person, then if it is going to be realized here on earth, we must see it in light of the encounter. Sacred scripture records one transformational encounter after another, huh? Especially in the gospel narratives. When Jesus Christ was here on earth, he came to establish the kingdom of God here on earth. And what does he do? He transforms hearts, one heart at a time. And so if the kingdom of God is about the encounter, then my dear friends, if the kingdom of God is going to be realized here on earth, in and through time, we must all take ownership of our personal relationship with Jesus Christ that comes out from that encounter. That is what's going to stir both our gradual transformation in Christ and consequently our discipleship in Christ. So the kingdom of God is first Christological. Second, the kingdom of God is mystical. What does that mean? The kingdom of God deals with the interior life. This component draws in that statement, Jesus Christ must reign in our hearts, huh? If the kingdom of God is about Jesus Christ, if the kingdom of God is about the encounter, this personal relationship, we must contemplate the kingdom of God. We must gaze upon the holy face of Jesus Christ. When we contemplate the person of Jesus Christ, he begins to saturate us with his life and his love. Obviously, first and foremost, sacramentally, but out from that, the more time we spend with him, the more our interior life begins to see and understand better the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Everything that Jesus Christ preaches, especially those words that we heard in today's gospel, those words that should shake us up a little bit. Are we serving the poorest of the poor and those who go without food, those who go without shelter, those who are lonely in our local prisons and convalescent homes? Are we seeing that this is yet the kingdom of God before us? If we fail in understanding that the kingdom of God is about Jesus incarnate, that the kingdom of God is about the interior life, then we will not be disposed, my dear friends, to see Christ in the poorest of the poor, 
there is that uh, great uh, image, painting. I believe it comes to us from uh, the Eastern Orthodox tradition that has Christ as the Samaritan from the Good Samaritan parable, a kind of provocative image to get us thinking, ultimately, that the parable of the Good Samaritan is in the end about us going to serve Jesus in the poor. Okay, those words should shake us. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Are not these the words we want to hear come judgment day? Again, remember, these sets of verses in the Gospel of Matthew come right before the Passion Narrative, the judgment of the nations. This is the end of the liturgical year. So we are made to see this is the, the end of time. Okay. In fact, the, the Gospel narrative itself unfolds at two historical levels. The first, our Lord initially foretells the judgment of Old Covenant Israel. And this involves his coming to Jerusalem in, in 70 AD as the shepherd who separates the faithful sheep of Israel from the wicked goats. And on another level, it ultimately foretells the general judgment at the end of history. This will involve Christ's second coming and the general resurrection of all people before his throne to be blessed, as verse 34 reminds us, or cursed, as verse 41 reminds us, according to to their deeds and inserting ourselves into this narrative, our deeds, right? So I get into that a little bit because what we are made to see then, as this is the end of the liturgical year, the church wants us to see this as kind of uh, the end of the seasons, right? That the church is constant in playing with this imagery. So as it relates to these categories of understanding kingdom, we have to take in that the kingdom of God is first about Jesus Christ. And we must have that single-mindedness, that single-heartedness, that laser-like focus on Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we want to go deeper into that reality. And this is where we are introduced to the mystical life, the interior life. And that third category speaks to the, the kingdom of God in its more regal function. That ultimately... Uh, the kingdom of God is not some abstract thing that no one can touch. No. The kingdom of God is the church here on earth. And so we are called to work for the building up of the kingdom of God here on earth. And we best do so again when we see the kingdom of God in its Christological reality, which simply means Christ first, and then, of course, again, its mystical component as well. Now... I wanted to take up uh, some of these initial verses from this narrative and reflect with these along with some of the writings of Mary Caucus, uh, the great biblical theologian on the Gospel of Matthew. Now, what are we made to see out from these opening verses? You know, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Okay, Jesus portrays, we can say with prophetic certainty, his own glorious return at the end of time as judge and king. And it is important to realize 
that the very grand apocalyptic picture he draws here does not simply come out of nowhere or solely from his own imagination, but ultimately, my dear friends, that his words verify this impending fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. As with the Torah itself, so too with the promise of a Messiah. What are those all-important words that come to us from the Sermon on the Mount? From the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, but have come to not abolish them, but to fulfill them. Remember what I have talked about in the past. Christ has not come to just fulfill, but ultimately transform and perfect. So it is that our Lord's portrayal of his future messianic triumph harmonizes perfectly with Daniel's famous night visions. Go back to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus presents the eschatological event. And again, eschatology is the word, right, eschaton, the study of the end times. The eschatological event is no longer to be seen as some tentative vision, as does Daniel, but a quasi-historical reality. There's no longer now we can say a question of someone being granted a special interior revelation, magnificent and awe-inspiring, yet also full of symbolic ambiguities that still need focusing. In our Lord's words, rather what we have is a description of a reliable event rooted in historical time and ushered in by a concrete, we can say, protagonist. When the Son of Man comes, then he will sit. This is uh, what we can say realistic clarity, my friends. It has everything to do with the fact that the Jesus who is now quietly, intimately speaking with his friends and the resplendent protagonist of the event he is narrating, the Son of Man, the King, are one and the same person. And so it is. Jesus here, my friends, speaks with full authority and certainty that can only be provided by the promised continuity of his presence. Now, these forms of firm authority displayed here by our Lord are ultimately rooted in the singular mystical authority that stems from his deepest identity. Why do I talk about this mystical component of our Lord? Why did Origen talk about it? Well, he is the God of glory who in his incarnation and remember, the passion narrative is coming up in his imminent passion, has fully merged and become one with all of the suffering world. What are we dealing with here, my friends? We are dealing 
with the unsurpassable authority of one who loves with self-emptying power. What is that passage that comes to us in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11? Though he was in the form of God, but did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. Therefore, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Remember, my friends, when we talk about suffering and power, Christ did not come to remove suffering. But ultimately, what he shows us is how suffering can have redemptive power. When we conform all that we are, all that we do, in all of its concreteness and particularity to Jesus Christ and offer to him as a very real, genuine sacrifice and call upon God the Father, take this suffering, take this pain, take these circumstances and give them redemptive power. What we do in that moment is we share in the redemptive mission of Christ. This is what Paul talks about in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 24. This is also what he wants us to see in Romans 8, verses 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, that we actually share in Christ's redemptive power. And as Paul reminds us, if we're going to build up the kingdom of God here on earth, we need to enter into this mystical component. As a father, I receive the greatest joy, the greatest happiness when I see my sons and or my daughters I should say daughter, my second daughter is still 10 months. <laughs> Go out of their way and do something for their sibling. Go out of their way in an act of service, in an act of charity for their friend. It gives me great joy when I see that all I want to do is pour out more love upon them. God the Father does the same. God the Father does the same. So, in light of that aforementioned passage from Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11, Paul's great Christological hymn, we are made to see that the authority and the glory of Christ the King spring forth from this emptying of self in the Greek kenosis, from the act whereby he really, totally, existentially, and personally identifies himself with every form of suffering and misery inherent in being born in human likeness. It is the authority that comes from suffering. We will be judged by a glorious king who signals the sentence with a pierced hand. That's Mary Caucus. I love that line. We will be judged by a glorious king who signals the sentence with a pierced hand. Man, isn't that a great line? We see in our Lord the divine Messiah who both judges and redeems with royal power. Mm. Amen. So in light of all of this, what more can we say of those all-important words? Come, O blessed of my Father, for I was hungry and you gave me food. Now our resplendent Lord now welcomes into his embrace those who welcomed him into theirs, and when he was down and out, had nothing to offer other than himself. The power and beauty of the Father were already there for the taking for those who could discover them 
and the hunger of the sun. And think of this here. Come, O blessed of my father, for I was hungry. My father, I was hungry. I mean, how astonishing. We have an unbroken continuity of God's eternal self and consciousness as he passes from the divine into the human and then the glorified form. For Jesus is in fact saying, I, who am by nature the Son of the Most High God and the one in whom he created the world, I, the very one who speak to you with boundless authority from this glorious throne, was astonishingly so, at one time, hungry, at one time, naked, at one time, weak. And because, by a divine instinct, you poured your compassion into my emptiness, I now pour the joy of my kingdom into your hearts. Think of it. Think of the, the radicality of our Christian faith. Remember the word radical means to the roots in God's emptying of himself. He reveals the wonder, the mystery, the beauty, and above all else, the paradox of everything that we stand for. So after the scene has been elaborately set, we are to imagine all the people of all time and of every part of the earth instantaneously brought together before the throne of the king. All of creation suddenly crystallizes in a new formation around the word and whom and through whom the universe came to be. Mm. And how consoling are the first words to come out of the king's mouth. Come, O blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This invitation reveals all the joy of the heart of the king at finally seeing completed all the work for which he has so toiled. And we can say emphatically, my friends, it was this that God intended from the very beginning of creation and throughout the long labor of redemption to share with his creatures out of his freedom and generosity, the superabundant life of the Trinity, that life which we've spoken so much about, that life of love and joy. The king says, come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Could there be a more forceful way of expressing the extent to which God has always ardently fervently desire to share with us everything that he is and has from the foundation of the world. Do you understand what I desire for you? He says, it is something that I have desired from the beginning of time. If a kingdom is the proper realm of a king and is a radiation of his qualities. And if this kingdom has been shaped from the outset to be given away as a gift, then we must conclude that this particular king has longed for nothing better than to make others participate in his own status as divine son. In baptism, we are incorporated into the very life of God, into the very love of God. We receive this grace which sticks into our very soul. It is a grace that is one and the same with joy. That word inherit, that single word inherit, 
gives the whole secret away at once. For only legitimate children inherit what belongs to their father. Last week we talked about inheritance, this this down payment, this installment. All of this is the very life of God that we are incorporated into and that we share in. And so it is. Let us share and participate in the life of God. Remember what we talked about last week? You know, what was that Greek translation of ability? You know, the Greek dynamua or dynamis? The power that God confers upon us is an actual sharing in his very qualities that give life. The whole parable of the talents itself was about uh, giving and having. God gives himself to us totally and entirely. If we are going to enter deeper into God, we must give what he gives us away. And in this way, in the economics of salvation and how we share in this drama that is salvation history, we must give. And when we give, we get so much more in return. This is very important. And if we don't, how did last week's parable end? Well, how does today's narrative end? We didn't really get into this last week. But our Lord has very similar words. Was that last verse? If they fail, if we fail to serve Christ in the poorest of the poor, in the imprisoned, in the naked, in the homeless, they, we, will go away into eternal punishment. Wow. The eternal fire our Lord's description of hell, that place where the wicked are consigned to everlasting punishment with the devil and his fallen angels. On Wednesday evenings, we have been talking a great deal about how Pope Francis talks a great deal about the existence of hell. By what authority does he have to speak on the matter of hell and Satan? My dear friends, Scripture He's everywhere. And our Lord is reminding us here, if we fail in going to the margins, then we fail Christianity. This is why Paul says the greatest of all virtues is love. Run to that person. Fill the void that is dark in that person. Do everything in your power to alleviate the tension and the pain in that person, whatever it takes. There are many who are suffering. It doesn't take much to find them. We just need to open our eyes. So let us do that. Let us pray for the grace this evening to have the Holy Spirit open our eyes to the ways in which he is calling us to go to him, to run to him. That we don't speak in this context of, oh, I need to do my good Samaritan act for the day. No, our very lives need to exist for the good Samaritan. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and never shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.